Sketches from Scripture presents Wandering, Wisdom from the Wilderness A teaching series from the stories of the Torah Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them. Taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, Please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. I've enjoyed doing these. These have been really important for me. Um, been trying to write during this time, and I've had a little bit of success and luck with that. And other days have not gone so well in terms of writing. And so, just to be able to do this is just even a creative outlet for me has been important. And one reason I'm so fascinated by um, the wandering period in particular, and uh, the storytelling of the book of Genesis, uh, I've got two works in progress right now, two two novels, basically, that sort of do deal with some of those themes. And um, so kind of going back through these series and re-exploring them is a good way for me to sort of brush up on some of the information, some of the storytelling and some of the Old Testament history and things like that um, that may come into play. We'll, we'll talk about one of those books later tonight. Uh, well, I'm still kind of waiting for some some people to come in. Uh, I'll just say to those of you listening on replay, if you go to skidmore.substack.com, that is uh, my new blog. If you like scripture and storytelling, that blog is a little bit of a mixture of both. It's just some first draft stuff um, that I'm um, mainly doing as writing exercises. Might be something that you're interested in reading. You can sign up for free. Please do sign up, subscribe for free. And you'll get those in your inbox on Saturdays. And paid subscribers get more posts um, on Tuesday and Thursday, just little delightful things. Uh, so you can pay by the month or you can pay for a year in advance. It's not a ton of money. And I know a lot of people are trying to save money at this point. But if you'd like to support an artist and storyteller, that's one way you could do it. And it would be very appreciated. Um, also, I've got three short stories and a novel on Amazon, on Apple Books. Uh, you can get the eBooks and read right away. You can order them from Amazon and get them in a few days. And um, I'd appreciate you buying those too and think that you would enjoy those. Yeah. So with that, I guess let's just do a little bit of review and um, take a look at some of the things that we've already talked about. So here's a map that I showed on my iPad the other night of what we call the Sinai Peninsula. I made my case that Sinai 
in the Bible is not really on what we call the Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula, but is actually to the east of that, on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba, um, a mountain, a very high mountain over there called Mount Laws. And that is, based on my study, what I think might be um, where the events in Exodus, uh, ch like chapter 19, which we're actually going to look at tonight, that's where I think maybe those events took place, that the Exodus itself came down from the green plain of the Nile Delta down uh, from on the uh, eastern side of the Gulf of Suez, down around the point of the peninsula, and crossed over that little land bridge where there's some um, uh, little islands and things there. <clears throat> and that's where the Red Sea was parted miraculously by the east wind by God. And the Israelites crossed on dry ground, and the Egyptians drowned and King Tutmos III lost his entire military and then sometime shortly thereafter went back to Egypt and began defacing every existence, uh, every existing picture, um, sculpture of Hatshepsut, his stepmother, who was very likely the Pharaoh's daughter that drew Moses out of the water to begin with. It seems as if he blamed her if she had let him die, as was the Pharaoh edict at the time, that this would not have happened to the nation of Egypt. And uh, so, again, going back over that, just to point out that one of the biggest criticisms of the Bible is that a lot of it's not historically verifiable. One of the biggest things being the exodus of Jews coming out of Egypt, that there's no historical evidence for that. We've been over the finding the city of Navarus, finding Joseph's tomb, all, all the different things that were going on with the pharaohs at the exact biblical times and how that sort of lines up with all the story points that's going on in scripture. Um, the evidence for uh, the city names and everything in scripture, where the exodus would have taken place, uh, the historical evidence for what the pharaoh did and how he reacted to all that, that. It's all circumstantial evidence, but there's a lot of it. So when somebody tells you there's no evidence that Jews, that there was an exodus of Semitic people out of Egypt, um, that's just not correct. It's just not, it's just wrong. And so hopefully that's given you enough that if you're really excited about it, you can go and learn some of these things and educate yourself on some of these things as well. Um, probably better for you to go and learn it yourself rather than just say, well, this guy on Facebook said that you're wrong. So that's not a good way to. Uh, win an argument with somebody. So even though those first two lessons were very information oriented, I hope that they were a blessing to you in some way. I have found in my study of scripture, when I am able to demystify it, and what I mean by that is sometimes the Bible seems like a mystical spiritual text. It's, it's holy and it's about this miraculous power and Jesus was God in the flesh and God is this thing that's very hard to describe. When, it, when the Bible seems like that, it, it, I have a hard time, I don't know what to do with it because it's, it's so foreign. But when I study the way that we've been studying Genesis and now getting into the rest of the Torah, when we study this way and see, oh, these are real people, this really happened, this happened in history, here we can point at times where this happened. When you start to demystify it, for me, that makes it more powerful, not less, because now I have high confidence that this this is real, that God really is trying to communicate somehow through these real events that happened in history. I hope that has that same effect 
for you as well. If nothing else, I hope this um, increases your appreciation for both the truth of scripture and also the artistry, the, the, the creativity, the craftsmanship, the storytelling of scripture. Um, so we're going to continue to talk a little bit about that craftsmanship tonight. I don't have a whole lot to share, um, but I know that um, I need to be careful saying that, I guess, because I keep running long. But let's go back to uh, the keynote. So there's the map once again. And let's just go right to this text. This is Exodus 19. So um, before we read that, just to say, what was the whole reason that Moses was giving Pharaoh for bringing all of the Jews out of Egypt? What he wanted to do was just take all the Israelites, take them out to the wilderness to worship their God. It was a three-day trip, and then they were going to come back. And you can see that there is some wilderness. It's Egyptian wilderness, but you can see that there is some wilderness there near Avaris where they would have lived. So it kind of makes maybe some sense that they would just go a one-day trip or whatever, worship God one day, and then come back. And of course, as we know, that's not how it played out at all. There were the 10 plagues and Pharaoh, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh would not let them go. And eventually we had the Exodus where they completely left Egypt, which took days to leave Egypt. It took more than three days even to get down the peninsula and across the Red Sea and out of Egypt. And so now they're out in the wilderness. They've got a body of water separating them between their previous captors and where they are now. But now you've got two or three million people. And remember, not just Israelites, but there was the the Erebrab, the, the riffraff that went along with them. It was people that just went along, wanted to go with them. So you've got mostly Israelites, plus some other people kind of mixed in, some foreigners. Um, and they're just out in the wilderness and there's no water and there's no food. And um, now what are they going to do? But remember, the original point they went out there was to worship God. And so skipping over a lot of stuff in Exodus, I do want to just look here at Exodus 19, because this is where God's glory shows up at Sinai, at the mountain. And here's what we read in Exodus 19. This is beginning in verse three. Moses went up the mountain to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles wings and brought you to me. Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people responded together, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. So the first thing that I kind of want to point out with the text here is this. When we go out into the wilderness with the Lord, as we wander with the Lord, not just wandering, not wandering away from God, wandering away from the church, wandering away from scripture, but rather wandering with the Lord into the unknown territory where he takes us. Remember, he told Abraham to go to a place that Abraham didn't know where he was going. He kept repeating this, this covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, a covenant that would not even begin to be fulfilled, really, for 400 years. Would not be fully fulfilled until Jesus comes along 2,000 years later. So um, we uh, go wandering with the Lord into unknown territory. When we do that, one of the first things that God begins to do is define who he is and who we are. 
So as we wander with the Lord, the Lord defines who he is and who we are. This is why it's so important when studying scripture, the Discovery Bible study that I've been talking about a couple of times, those first two questions, what does this passage say about God? And what does this passage say about humanity, about, about the nature of people? That's why those two questions are so important to ask first. So we have a biblical example here in the Exodus and the wandering period of this whole from Exodus to Deuteronomy. We have a great example here that we need to ask those questions first before we go to personal application, before we go to asking for our own things, before we go to complaining to God about what else is going wrong. What God wants to do when he comes down on the mountain is he says to Moses, tell them who I am and tell them who they are. And when that happens, the people respond, okay, yeah, we want to go with you. We want to do that. We want to be that person. So here you have God saying, here's who I am. You've just seen who I am. And I'm telling you, I'm going to continue to be that for you. And now I'm telling you, here's who you are to me. Can, can you imagine if we saw, I mean, it, the rest of Exodus 19 is, is visibly seeing the, the fire and the lightning and everything on the top of the mountain and the smoke and Moses going up into it and coming back down. And we learn that when every time Moses goes to see the Lord and comes back down, his face is just shining brilliant. And it's just amazing. It would have been an amazing thing to witness. Imagine if every day we could just have God say to us, hey, just a reminder, here's who I am and here's who you are. I think if we heard God say to us, Paul, here's who you are. You know how encouraging that would be for me to hear that every day from God, for God to say who, who you think you are in your mind, in your fear, in your anxiety, all the lies that Satan has given you, that the world has given you, that the, the hurts of your past are giving you, all those lies they're trying to tell you about who you are. They're all wrong. I'm God. I made you. Here's who I am. You've seen what I've done. Now let me tell you who you are. And if I had God telling me every day who I was, how different would my life be? Of course, I would say, yeah, I want to be that. When it's between what the world is telling me who I am and what God is telling me who I am, which one do you think I'd rather be? Of course, I would rather be who God is telling me who I am, right? Because when God tells uh, tells us who we are. Um, I mean, look, look again, what he, what he says, what he tells them, you will be, this is in verse uh, six, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you were to say to the Israelites. This is not even, you know, go pick out some select people. I mean, we have something that happens with the elders a little later, but he's not saying, go tell this to a few people or go tell this to the important people or go tell this to the paid ministers or go tell this to the, the preachers or the elders. No, what he says is go tell this to the Israelites, the whole nation, our priests and holy people. I have set them apart for something special. Wouldn't you love to hear that from God every day? This is why the Discovery Bible Study stuff is so important because that's how we do that every day. When we look at scripture, even a small piece, and we say, okay, what did this just tell me about God? And what did this just tell me about who I am, about my nature? Even if it's tough to hear. That's the way we hear that from God every day. That's the way every day we can hear from God who he is and who we are. So he begins that. He begins. This is the first really organized religion that we've seen in the Bible. There's been God worship and there's been some sacrifices and things like that. But this is like God is really pulling the people together and is going to institute like, here's how we're going to kind of do organized religion. And there's going to be a tabernacle and there's going to be sacrifices and offerings and all these kinds of things. 
But the, the beginning of it is God says, I just want you to know who I am. You've seen who I am, but I'm telling you, I'm on your side. This is who I am. And this is who you are. This is who I want you to be. This is what I intend for you. That's a great place to start with God. So when we begin entering into a wandering period with the Lord, the Lord defines who he is, who he is and who we are. As we go into this tough time in our world, in our country over the next couple of weeks, the Lord is going to define for us who he is and who we are if we will listen and obey. Let's go on now to this scripture in Exodus 34. This is where Moses is speaking with the Lord and the Lord tells Moses once again, who he is. And Moses has a response. And I want you to see what happens here. Uh, the Lord, the Lord is a, this is, sorry, this is Exodus chapter 34 and verse six. God proclaims the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and worshiped. Then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor in your sight, my Lord, please go with us. Even though this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wrongdoing and sin and accept us as your own possession. Uh, those of you with the Bible in front of you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's Exodus 32 that it's the golden calf story, right? It's like kind of right in the middle of all this. And so Moses is meeting with God and God is saying, here's who I am. And I love this description of God and I try to remember it a lot. And the thing is, if you've been through the Genesis series with us, you already know this about God. You have already seen this. Look at the description and remember back to the Genesis series, how accurate a description this is from what we've seen so far, that he's compassionate, he's gracious, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, keeps loving even with all the evil and sin and everything going on in the world. When he finds someone who is who is faithful, he just continues to give that love. We've seen it from Abraham now all the way 400 years now into where Moses is born. Forgiving wrongdoing. We saw that in the story of, of Judah and Joseph, this idea of forgiveness, um, the beginning of forgiveness. Rebellion and sin. We saw this in the Garden of Eden in chapter three. We saw this in Cain and Abel, the, the, the first brothers. Uh, we saw it in the sons of Cain and in the, um, you know, the daughters of men. We saw this in, um, even in Noah, we saw this in Ham. We saw this in Lot and his daughters. We've seen the rebellion and sin. And he says, I won't let the guilty go unpunished. We saw this with, with Cain being banished, with Adam and Eve being banished from the garden with, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding uh, towns being destroyed because of the oppression on the weak that were in their cities bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So let's please notice that 
God brings the consequences of wrongdoing to the third and fourth generation, but he brings the consequences of love to a thousand generations. To just see that God's God has anger and God has justice and God has punishment and discipline, and they are exponentially outnumbered by his love and his compassion and his grace. So that's why I love this definition of who God is. And like I said, when we hear who God is and who we are every day, what's our response? It's very similar to Moses's, which is to say, if we if you found any favor in us, please go with us. Even though we're stiff-necked and we have wrongdoing and we have sin, please let us belong to you. Please go with us. And so this is the next thing that I want to point out about this wandering period as they the Israelites haven't even gotten anywhere yet. They've just gotten to the, the mountain and they're just camping out at the foot of the mountain for now while God is working everything out with, with Moses and the people. But this is kind of where we get to this idea that uh, Moses says, go with us and we will be yours. This is really the key to me to this whole wandering thing is this idea that we will go with you, that God will go with us, that we're going together. This goes back again to the Genesis uh, series where Jacob wrestled with God. He didn't wrestle against God. He didn't fight God. He wasn't trying to get God away from him. He wasn't trying to win an argument with God. He was wrestling with God. He was clinging, embracing God, trying to keep God close and begging for a blessing. He was wrestling with God and God blessed him through it. That's what we're going to see take place over a much longer period with this wandering series. That the Israelites, they're going to be stiff-necked. They're going to be complaining. They're, they're going to be unfaithful. They're going to be disbelieving. They're going to be disobedient. Even Moses is going to be disobedient. But ultimately, the people of God, even though it's just Joshua and Caleb and, and all the youngsters, even though it's just basically two people that sort of remain wholeheartedly faithful, that the people of God are going to remain intact. And the people of God are going to belong to God. They're going to be a special possession. They're going to fulfill their role in his plan. And they're going to do it with him. Even the punishment they get, even the discipline they get in the wilderness, they're going to do with him. He's not going to punish them by sending them away. He's going to discipline them and stay with them and provide for them. And we're going to see that over and over. So I'm going to go on now to this next scripture and um, I'll read it and then we'll sort of talk about what kind of happens before this. This is now in Exodus 40. And this is the Lord's glory covering the tabernacle. So a lot's happened between what we just read and what's happening here. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. So even at night, they could see that God was with them. Even at night. God's presence. It wasn't even just a cloud that you could kind of see. If you, there was a fire in it. So there was a light. It was like this big nightlight saying, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. Um, 
that's got to be an important comfort. They would take it for granted. They would grow used to it. They would forget. But at least here in the beginning, you can imagine what a magnificent spectacle that was to see. And so this tent of meeting that they're talking about, this is the tabernacle. What happens in the chapters previous to this is God calls someone by name. His name is Bezalel to be the person that essentially designs and builds the tabernacle. Now, God has some very specific designs for how it is to be built. He gives that to Moses to give to Bezalel, but he calls Bezalel out by name and he gives him an assistant, Aholiab, which who he also calls out by name, that these two should build the tabernacle. And not only are these two craftsmen to build everything involved with the tabernacle, the tent and all the um, supporting beams and all of the, the gold instruments and, and um, everything inside, but they're also to train other people just the two of them alone were not going to make it, but they were to train other people how to do these crafts of the, the sewing and the metalworking and the woodworking and um, the, the jewelry cutting and all this kind of stuff. So they had all this gold and silver that they'd taken from the Israelites that they plundered when they left. They had all this extra cloth and everything. In fact, they brought so many things. Moses eventually had to tell everybody, stop bringing stuff. You're bringing, we have too much. Can you imagine any eldership getting up in front of the church on Sunday morning and saying, please do not give this Sunday. We just have too much. You've just given too much. We don't know, you know. We don't know what to do with it all. I've never seen that happen in a church ever, right? But that's what happened here in this instance. Um, and so Bezalel and Aholiab, they get a team together and they instruct them on how to do these things. And they build the tabernacle and God comes down and he lives in the tabernacle. So I mentioned some books that I'm writing before. One of the books that I'm writing is about Bezalel. It's called Dreams of Bezalel. And it's about this guy that there's really only a couple of verses about him, and they're all in Exodus, and they're all right here talking about building the tabernacle. And he's never mentioned before or after that I, that I that I'm aware of. We know nothing, basically nothing about him except that he he made all of these things, was in charge of making all these things, and he's just a really fascinating character to me, uh, especially because the people who take care of the of the temple and who take care of everything that they're they're all Levites, they're tribe of Levi. Well, Bezalel's tribe of Judah. So after he makes all of these things, like the Ark of the Covenant and the menorah and all these things that go into the, the holiest place and the holy of holies, once they go in there and the Lord descends on the tabernacle, the scripture that we just read, uh, Bezalel never sees them ever again, never sees them uncovered again. Anytime that they come out for travel, they're all covered and wrapped up. Only the priests would see them. And he's not a Levi. He can never be a priest. And I assume that he's over 20 years old. When he is called, I guess he doesn't have to be, but it seems that he is. So this is someone who, as part of the discipline and the wandering, will die and never see the promised land. It's very heartbreaking to me that here's this, this person who, by hand, constructed the Ark of the Covenant, the very seat of God. They call it the mercy seat. It is the thing in the Holy of Holies that only one person sees one time a year, other than when they're wrapping it to move. And this is the thing that where God comes into the Holy of Holies and, and sits on this. This is his seat. This is his throne. And here is this master craftsman, Bezalel, who has constructed this thing. And as soon as it's put in place and starts to be put to use, he'll never see it ever again. He's made probably the, the greatest masterpiece in all of the universe. And he'll never see it again. And he'll die in the desert. And that it's a little bit heartbreaking to me. And so as I thought about this character, I started writing this story that's coming out of that. And I've come to some really fascinating places with it. And um, 
it's actually the first book I started writing and I, I put it on hold to write some smaller things first and I, I hope to get back to it soon. It's one reason I'm doing the series is to kind of do some research and get back to that. But um, but I say all that to kind of bring up the Ark of the Covenant. That here was this, you've all seen Return of the Jedi, I'm sorry, <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the depiction of it in there is actually a pretty scriptural depiction. I mean, uh, the the description in scripture is is fairly detailed, so pretty much any mock-up of the Ark of the Covenant is going to look relatively similar. But I think that's the one that's commonly in our mind is the one from Raiders of the Lost Ark from Indiana Jones. And that's probably very close to what it looked like. It's about the right size and covered in gold and has the, the, the uh, cherubim uh, on top with their wings touching. And this was the seat of God. This was essentially the throne of God that God came and rested upon. And I bring it up because there were three things that were put into the Ark of the Covenant eventually. And that was these three things, the stone tablet upon which uh, God had inscribed the Ten Commandments. So in other words, the law. It was Aaron's staff. This was the staff that that budded with um, the almond buds when he used it as a miraculous sign in front of Pharaoh in order to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. That was placed into the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant. And a gold jar full of manna. We haven't gotten the manna in the story yet, but if you know the Old Testament, you know God provided manna for them while they were in the wilderness so that they had something to eat every day. It was the same thing every day. It was these little flakes that you'd grind up and make bread out of and be kind of like uh, kind of like a honey golden grams kind of is kind of what they tasted like, which I love golden grams. Probably wouldn't want to eat them for every meal every day for 40 years. Okay. So, but God provided for them miraculously this manna. And so there was a jar of the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant. And the reason these things were in the Ark of the Covenant, even though no one looked in the Ark of the Covenant, even though no one even saw the Ark of the Covenant, except for the high priest once a year, these things were in there because it was a reminder of how important these things were. Not just the specific emblems, but it was a reminder of how important the law was to the people, God's covenant, his commandments. It's a reminder of how important the signs of God were. We call them miracles, but they were signs. They weren't just miracles to, you know, to, you know, like a magic show. It was to show Pharaoh that this God had power that he didn't have. When Jesus comes and does miracles and he's doing healing and he's restoring sight to the blind and he's uh, the, 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 the woman who's bleeding stopped and uh, raising people from the dead. When he does these things, uh, Jesus is very clear. I'm doing these things because they testify about who I am. Jesus doesn't do them just to do them. Although Jesus, I'm sure, was very glad to heal people that needed healing. But the reason he did them is so that the world would know he had the authority for his teaching. Just like when he healed the man on the Sabbath, and he said, which is easier to say you're healed or your sins are forgiven? Because he, he, he told the man that his sins were forgiven. They said, who is this that's forgiving sins? He says, well, which is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven? Who could see if the man's sins were really forgiven? But he says, so that you know the, I, that I have the authority to for, forgive sins, take up your mat and walk. When he was miraculously healed, that was the sign that Jesus was somebody who did have the authority to forgive sins. So when we have these great miraculous signs in scripture, they're always a sign of God's power. They're not just uh, a thing unto themselves. They are a sign of who God is, what his power is. 
So Aaron's staff is in the Ark of the Covenant because it's a sign of God's power. And it's a sign of God's power specifically against Egypt. You will see throughout the Old Testament, God will say, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Even when we get to uh, Jesus, it quotes Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, out of Egypt, I brought my son, Matthew quotes. Right? So, um, so you have the Ten Commandments, which is a reminder of God's commandments, the law, God's wisdom. You have Aaron's staff, which is a reminder of the, the mighty things that God has done. And then you have the manna, which is, again, miraculous, but it's that was just about daily provision. You know, uh, the Lord's Prayer, give us our daily bread. That's the daily bread. It's just the daily provision. And, and remember, if you recall about the manna, you could collect for that day, but you weren't allowed to save any till the next day. And before the Sabbath, you had to collect two days worth. And if you went out to look for it on the Sabbath, there wasn't any. And if you saved any over from the night before on a non-Sabbath day, it was all full of worms and maggot-ridden, you know? And and the whole idea there was as a discipline. God was saying, just trust me for today. Just don't worry about tomorrow. Just trust me for today. And doesn't Jesus say this in the Sermon on the Mount? Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Why do you worry about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat? God will provide those things for you. And I think anybody that's got an internet connection and is on Facebook listening to this, you don't have a real deep fear that tomorrow you're not going to have food, that tomorrow you're not going to have clothes. You're being provided for. There's a lot of things we worry about. You may have lost your job. You may be watching the stock market go up and down. You may be uh, worried about sickness and illness and all these things. But you know what? Tomorrow, you're going to have food. You're going to have a a roof over your head. You're going to have clothes. The the big things are taken care of. So that manna is in the Ark of the Covenant because it reminds us of God's daily provision and our need to trust him just on a day-by-day basis. We don't need to have the whole map laid out. We don't need to have the whole where we're going in the wandering, where we're going to go next. We just need, that's what the Lord's Prayer says, our daily bread. We don't need groceries for the week. We just need bread for today. That's, that's all we really need to ask God for in prayer. Just give us, just give us bread for today and let us trust in that. So in the ark, you have the law, God's signs, and God's daily provision. Well, I love Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, but the problem is that movie probably is not possible because I'm pretty confident the Ark of the Covenant no longer exists. As heartbreaking as it is for me to say that, there's pretty good evidence that when Babylon came in and took all the, you know, during the Babylonian captivity, came and took all the Jews out, the tribe of Judah out, and uh, held them captive in uh, Babylon. Uh, they took all the implements and everything out of the temple. Scripture tells us that and probably melted it all down. And I think there's even some prophecy, post-exilic prophecy in the Old Testament that basically says, forget the ark. Um, don't don't set your hope on the ark anymore. And I think it's probably because it didn't exist anymore. It had been turned into, you know, necklaces and eating utensils and who knows what all. And um, so I don't think we'll ever see the Ark of the Covenant again, uh, at least in this life. I don't think that we will. It's kind of heartbreaking for me. I'd really love to, I'd love to see it. Don't want to look in it. We all saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I would love to see it. Uh, but I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it exists anymore. 
But it doesn't need to because in Christ, you know, remember when Christ was crucified, the curtain between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple was torn as a way of saying the Holy of Holies is no longer a place where only God can go. That because of Christ, because of Christ's forgiveness, because of the perfect sacrifice, now God's relationship to man has been reconciled. Remember we looked at that passage a little while ago, that we've been reconciled. This is the Judah, Joseph, the reconciliation that comes through forgiveness, right? And so now we have scriptures like these. This is um, Colossians 1. You can turn over there if you want. I'm just, I'm not going to put it on the screen. I'm just going to read it. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, near the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Colossae saying, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. The church is Christ's body, he says. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. What mystery, Paul? This mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that same glory that descended on the tent of meeting that we just read about. This mystery, the mystery of the gospel is that Christ is in you. It's the hope of glory is in you. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present mature in Christ. I labor for this striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Paul really making the case that the church is the body. The church collective is the tent of meeting and that Christ is in us. By the way, all the words you in that passage are all plural. It's not just the individual you, Christ in you. It is Christ in y'all, to use the Southern plural. It is Christ in the church, Christ in you. Let's also go over to Ephesians chapter 3, a very similar letter from Paul to the early Christian church in Ephesus. And this is a prayer that he has for this church that was his home church for three years. And he writes this letter to them after that, missing them. And he says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Uh, calls back to Genesis there. I pray that he may grant you, you plural, according to the riches of his glory. There's the word glory again. To be strengthened with power in your inner being, in your innermost place, in that holy of holies, through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, width, height, and depth of God's love. Just as God gave the instructions for the height and the width and the length of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant itself, Paul says, I hope, I wish God would give you, again, would tell you who he is and who you are and what his love is. He continues in verse 19, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. I pray that you know something that is unknowable, and that is Christ's love. Why? So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In the same way that God came down and filled the tabernacle, God now comes and fills our hearts. Paul making very, I mean, remember, he's writing to a lot of Jewish Christians, even in Ephesus. He's writing to Christians that are Jews that understand this temple language big time. 
that God is going to come into the temple that is the church, not the church building, but the church, the people, not just the individual person, but the collective church. And he's going to make his throne, what? Our hearts, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So our hearts now serve the place of the mercy seat. Our hearts now take the place of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what three things should we have in our hearts? It's the same three things. We need to have the law permanently in our heart. We need to have the the memorials, the, the memories of all the big things God has done for us in the past. That's what our faith is built on. That's what our trust is built on. We've seen what God has done. We know who he is. We need to be reminded of that sometimes. And if we keep in our heart, our, our very own Aaron's rod, Aaron's staff, then we'll remember the big things God has done in our lives. We can remember that. And we need to keep the reminder of God's daily provision and God's daily discipline in our hearts. In our hearts, we need to keep God's law, God's sign, God's provision. And in doing so, we keep God's promise, God's covenant in our hearts. Our hearts become an ark that keep his covenant. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.